Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is sponsored by, new sponsor alert, DeLupa. DeLupa was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity into the investment process. DeLupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. DeLupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation. Analysts spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel and more time synthesizing in the minutes after the print. DeLupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNA, and investor presentations. DeLupa's data sheets include gap and non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. DeLupa's Excel plugin can also update your existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. Bulge bracket banks and major multi-managers are trusting DeLupa for use in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping their models up to date. Visit delupa.com forward slash business brew to create a free account and learn more about how DeLupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. That's what I had to read. Now I'm going to tell you how I use it. The product has every single KPI that a company has disclosed through time. You might say to yourself, well, Bill, why did you accept DeLupa after you just told me to use Stratosphere? Here's how I think about them. Stratosphere is like a very, very legit prosumer product. Delupa is a straight up institutional product. You get every single KPI that a company has ever disclosed. You can see when they stop reporting, when they do start reporting. You can scan the spreadsheet and see how things change. If I need to get up to speed on a company, thankfully I have access to Delupa because of the podcast and the sponsorship. So I'm able to use it. I check out a KPI, I click on the KPI, DeLupa opens up another browser window, and I'm able to see the actual footnote that the KPI in the spreadsheet is citing. I can cross-check things, I can see units, I can see whether or not I understand what I think I'm looking at quickly. It's a fantastic way to get up to speed, and I'm happy to have them as a sponsor. And I think that for the prosumers out there, Stratosphere is a great solution, and for the institutional people out there, DeLupa is... And that's why I'm comfortable with both as sponsors back-to-back, and that's why you should be comfortable with me as a host. As always, none of this is investment advice. All of this is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own due diligence and consult a financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Enjoy the show. We're thrilled to be joined by Josh Clarkson, who may or may not become a podcast host, but you've missed the first three minutes of this conversation. So that's an inside joke. Anyway, why don't you start out telling us what you do? And I said to open the other one, I need a private credit Sherpa. I'm hoping that you will be my Sherpa. Yeah, definitely. And apologies for the technical difficulties and all the inside humor people might not be privy to. Well, they have missed out on a lot, a lot. Oh, yes, they certainly did about my adoring praise for Bill's full spectrum of podcast work from Value After Hours to the Business Brew. Yeah. The true impresario of the format. Thank you. Continue the compliments. 
So yeah, so I'm a managing director of a firm called ProSec Partners. We are a communications, branding, marketing firm that's pretty squarely focused on the financial and professional services sectors, and in particular, alternative asset management's an area where we really focus on. And it's an area where we've seen a real shift in the demand for proactive marketing, branding, and communication strategies over the last 10 plus years. Historically, a lot of Firms in the space really like to keep a low profile, keep running their very lucrative and successful businesses, and they would engage when needed on a deal or a specific investment or the like, but generally didn't want to have a big public persona. And that's really shifted in the last few years, driven by just the institutionalization of the space as you now have these large multi-strategy public companies that are essentially large operating corporations. You've also had a big shift in the incremental alternative dollar shifting from a hedge fund or a strategy that was really trading more in liquid markets to more of a private market business where a lot of these firms, they are business operators themselves. They own a portfolio of companies and they see how marketing impacts those businesses. And also at some level, in many of those private market businesses, you do need the person taking your money to want to take it. It's not as simple as just buying a QCIP from a broker. And so your public perception and how people think of you as an owner or investor in their business does matter. Uh, so you're saying the potential portfolio companies or companies that you're lending to, the more that they can kind of do some background research on you, the better off you may or may not be. Exactly. And a colleague, a really wonderful man named David Wells, who unfortunately passed away recently, way too young, but he had this wonderful saying he always liked to use with people about, we help you better compete for capital deals and talent. Mm. Capital meaning attracting investors, whether that be LPs or retail investors or any other type of investors, and deals being exactly kind of making sure that you're seeing all the deals you want to see, making sure that when you go into a competitive pitch process, I mean, listen, price is obviously going to be outcome determinative in a lot of these things, but at the margin, especially if it's a private equity situation where the management team is going to stay in place, if it's a credit situation where you want to make sure you're not in some kind of loan-to-own situation, what that person taking your capital thinks of you does matter. So having a public perception of you and your firm so that when they Google you, there is something that they find out there, that is important. It's only more important. And then talent, I mean, these are people-driven businesses. Your human capital and your human talent is your most valuable resource in a lot of these situations. So making sure that you are kind of the employer of choice for the kind of people that you want to be hiring is extremely important. How do you develop a trusted relationship with your clients? Because while I may be wrong categorizing your clients this way, but I suspect that they are very driven, alpha type, no BS type people. And I wonder sometimes whether or not they are excited about a PR firm or a corporate communications Sherpa, for lack of a better term, <laughs> consultant, whatever. How do you make them understand your value and have a symbiotic relationship? Completely. Or one that they respect you? It's a very, very good question and one that we're obviously always striving to solve for because that's what we need to establish is that trusted counselor and advisor relationship with our clients. And I would say that there's a few different facets of it. And it's also obviously highly situation specific. One kind of relevant point of history here is that most of the call them financially literate PR firms out there, of which there are a handful and they're really great. And I know and respect tons of people at those firms. A lot of those firms come from a history of more kind of being focused on transactions 
crisis management, really nitty gritty financial situations. And we do all that previously in my career. That's all I did with shareholder activism and contentious restructurings in M&A. So that's kind of one way that you can get to know your client is that you were brought in to handle a really high pressure situation where there was going to be public attention and they were going to need to manage that in the right way, whether reactively or proactively shifting the narrative. And when you first work with someone in that context, it's a really high pressure situation. You build that trust really fast with them, with their advisors, with a lot of stakeholders at the client. And if you're a firm where really all you do is focus on the deals and the high pressure stuff and the special situations. And then it's, you might kind of fade to the background or maintain some level of activity, but it's really kind of, Hey, call me next time you need that level of support. Prosec, we will very often begin a relationship that way. And then it will turn into, Oh, well, you do all these other things. How can you kind of help me be on the front foot more often? Tell my story more proactively, be on Bloomberg TV, be in the wall street journal, be more active on LinkedIn, have a better looking website actually, I need to kind of rebrand because maybe my brand feels a little stale and maybe I need to even rename my firm because the name was right 20 years ago. And now people it's named after are gone or the way it was named doesn't make sense for how the firms evolved. There's mm-hmm. a whole spectrum of other things we can provide. So sometimes it's, it's born out that way. A lot of other times it's a situation where they come to you for one distinct need, or they're kind of starting to see their competitors be out there more, and they're kind of realizing that they need this more. And they kind of bring you in under the tent a little bit. And then when you really start showing them what you can do, you build that trust. It can also be something where you were brought in by the capital formation or the marketing function, and they had real buy-in from day one on it because they see how it's going to support their mission. But then it's earning that trust from the business people, from the investment professionals, from legal. I realize I haven't actually got to how you earn that trust, which it's knowing what you're talking about. A big part of it is demonstrating, you know, these are specialized firms that do highly technical, specialized, complex things. You know, it's not like you can just kind of be doing PR or marketing for a CPG company who are way ahead of a lot of these firms in terms of how they approach marketing. And we're trying to bring some of that sophistication to them, but it's just such a different yeah. You need to know what you're talking about. You need to know what a unitronch loan is. You need to know what a syndicated loan is. You need to know when somebody says something priced 200 bips wide of initial price talk, what that means. When somebody starts talking about leverage multiples and EBITDA adjustments and covenants, you need to know what language they're speaking to be taken seriously as an advisor here. And by dint of our specialization and expertise and the fact that, to speak from my personal seat, ProSex probably the only platform in the world where I could feed a growing three-year-old child by focusing pretty much entirely on working with private credit and CLO manager clients because we focus on the space so much. So yeah. that's the table stakes is knowing what you're talking about. That makes sense. As you said, these are alpha hard charging people come from a banking background very often. You need to be operating at that level that they're operating being available when they need you to be available. That might be nights, that might be weekends. It's that level of responsiveness and moving with that sense of urgency. And then I also think it's being, I shouldn't say this is an exclusive list, but one thing that I've always really prized is the candor and being realistic and not over-promising to win a piece of business when you can't deliver or not kind of saying the easy thing in the moment when it's not how you think it's really gonna play out. Like not saying what somebody wants to hear in the moment and then figuring out later how to address that, but really being upfront with people about what is reasonable to expect for their fund close. Or when you're in a difficult situation, people will often come saying, help me kill this story. I need you to kill this story. And that's not really something that happens out there in the real world. There's this kind of popular perception of the PR person that I have some 
relationship with the New York Post where I can call them and stories disappear. And I wish I had that relationship. Maybe I'd be worth more if I did. But in reality, it's about this is how we can shift the story. This is how we can make the story more about. I mean, listen, the story's way off base. That's different. But what are we realistically going to be able to accomplish here? And I think that candor and that truthfulness is another big part of earning that trust. Are we even living in a world where you're able to kill a story? Once it's out there, I mean... Sorry, when I say kill a story, it's kind of in the context of like, it's not out there yet. Okay. You've gotten the call about, hey, I heard XYZ thing and I'm looking for your comment. Here's the story I'm running. And sometimes a client will call and say, I got this call. I want you to kill this story. It's a bad story. Now, listen, if the story is legitimately off base and inaccurate, then... Sure, I could call the reporter and say, hey, off the record, you're getting spun a line here. You're getting fed some bad info. That's not accurate. Here's what is accurate. This isn't a story. That is a situation that comes up. But yeah, the more often situation is there is some truth to it, but maybe the reporter has only one side of that story. And that's when it's important as the client or the subject of the story. You don't just want to stick your head in the sand and no comment, no comment, no comment, and hope it goes away. It's probably not going to. And so you need to kind of really thoughtfully engage there about how am I going to shift this, make it more balanced, tone it down, make it less sensational, make sure that both sides are included. And that's kind of where the art of the relationship with the journalist, the facts at your disposal, crafting them in the right way, all kind of come into play to try to deliver that more positive outcome. Hmm. I often think a lot about Buffett the marketer, and I wonder, I hear people want to remain below the radar or they just want to let their work speak for themselves. And I respect the thought behind that thought, but I can't help but also think that marketing seems to be, and you know, he's only one, right? I don't want to use him, but marketing is a key component of so many successes. And I don't see how anybody could come on a podcast or news or whatever and say anything that could possibly get other people to attack what they're good at because the stuff that they're probably actually good at is probably the stuff that nobody else either wants to do or can do well. I heard, I forget who it was, that said, like, I could basically lay out my entire investment philosophy and nobody would copy it because it's just simple, but it's very hard. It requires a lot of manual stuff. I think a Dan's Wern. If you'd like to compete with him, go ahead. Start up a firm and go compete with that. That's not so easy. Exactly. And especially when you're operating kind of more niche areas, more specialized areas where it does require a lot of manual effort, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of knowledge, a lot of local relationships, for sure. Certainly there's that kind of tension between I don't want to give away the secret sauce, but at the same time, you need people to know what you do and you need people to understand that you have a repeatable process, a competitive advantage, an edge to get them to want to invest with you, especially in an era of easy access to passive investments. If you want exposure to some broad asset class, you can probably, I mean, PE is a little bit different, but generally speaking, if you want exposure to a lot of asset classes, you can probably get that for 50 bips or less from an ETF. If you want equity exposure, I mean, even if you want credit exposure, you can buy HYG, you can buy senior loan. Those are like the two big ETFs for for bonds and loans. And I don't know the exact fees off the top of my head, but it's meaningfully lower than you are going to pay a private credit manager. Now, obviously what you want to look at is the kind of net returns over time and what they've delivered. And I think a lot of, most of the folks in private credit, I would say have earned that higher fee in terms of a net return over most of those comparables. Yeah. 
when you think about benchmarking one of your clients, you could go to high yield or you could go to some like a group of BDCs. Yeah. Hopping around here a little bit. Most of my clients operate in the call it alternative credit space, the below investment grade credit space. As I said, I used to focus pretty squarely on mergers and acquisitions, shareholder activism, really contentious restructurings, kind of in a parallel with how the industry evolved, the credit investing industry evolved in some ways during a period of low rates and low defaults. There were not a lot of very contentious restructurings for me to advise on for a while. So I started working with more performing credit clients and really developed a passion for it and an interest for it. When you look at that kind of broad church of below investment grade credit, you obviously have high yield bonds, which are bonds, usually fixed rate. You have broadly syndicated loans, which would are often bought by CLOs and loan mutual funds, such as the aforementioned senior loan or bank loan or some of the big ETFs. And then you have private credit, which can be a broad church and encompass a lot of different strategies, ranging from distress to asset backed. And we can talk about some of those more later, some of the stuff that Dan does, but, but large cap direct lending, which is really the one that's most comparable to kind of a high yield bond or a broadly syndicated solution. The pools of capital that, say, a large cap PE sponsor would look to tap when financing a new LBO, you kind of have those three big pools of high-yield bonds, which have fallen out of favor with PE and aren't used as much by sponsors anymore. Broadly syndicated loans, which for the past few years have kind of been the financing method of choice for a large cap LBO. And then direct loans provided by private credit firms, which had historically been more of a solution for a smaller borrower, a smaller PE firm that wasn't able to access the syndicated market because the company wasn't large enough or it had some kind of, for lack of a better word, hair on it that wouldn't make it easy for the banks to underwrite and the sealers to hold. Now, over the past five, 10 years, that market has just matured and raised more capital and lent to bigger borrowers. And then especially during COVID, when you had the markets shut for a little bit there, you saw a real acceleration in terms of the largest cap transactions utilizing a private credit direct lending solution. As an aside, apologies if I use private credit and direct lending interchangeably. It's kind of a rectangle and a square thing where all direct lending is a form of private credit, but not all private credit is direct lending. Hmm. Right. Okay. More straight. All right. And then more recently, obviously you've seen a lot of tumult in the broadly syndicated markets. More recently, rates rising, some banks getting stuck with hung deals. So again, you've kind of seen direct lending step into the breach and kind of be the only game in town, for lack of a better word, to finance really large cap buyouts or largely the only game in town. Now, I'm going to come back to your question about what you compare it against. I only gave that really broad landscape just because in terms of, right, what you compare it against, you want to make sure you're comparing something against the most apt comparison. So for a direct lender who's making privately originated loans, I mean, as an asset class, the closest comp would probably be broadly syndicated loans. They're both loans, they're both floating rate, less prepayment penalties than bonds. So comparing them to bonds can be a bit apples and oranges because you have duration components and fixtures floating, and especially in a rising interest rate environment, it's probably not really a fair comparison to compare a floating rate loan to a fixed rate bond. As asset classes, you could kind of compare a basket of top tier BDCs to a basket of loan mutual funds mm. and kind of look at how those have compared because that's relatively floating rate loans, senior secured. And BDCs have been able to historically earn a premium for that kind of certainty of execution and confidentiality and other benefits that direct lending provided for the borrower sponsor. 
And then for the end investor, you're getting that premium. You're also probably getting some tighter covenants. There's been a lot of ink spilled about CovLite and whatnot, which is CovLite actually means a very specific thing, but it's kind of been twisted to mean degradation in, in loan and credit documentation writ large. Generally, private and direct loans have somewhat tighter documentation. Obviously, everything is bespoke and transaction by transaction, and some of the broadly syndicated transactions might. And also, if the company does, and this is an advantage for both the company and the investors in some way, where if the company does run into trouble and does need to amend its loan, have some kind of engagement with its lenders about reaching a commercial solution to a business problem or financial problem might be facing, it's probably getting fewer than a half dozen people around a table or a Zoom call to have a discussion, as opposed to if you issued broadly syndicated loans or high-yield bonds, and you need to get dozens or hundreds of people into a room to have that conversation. Hmm. Interesting. If you issue bonds, there really needs to be that many people generally in the room. It seems to me like there's going to be a few that are really like pulling the strings, but you need whatever the majority in the documents are is what you're going to need, right? Are there really going to be a hundred bondholders that are really moving the needle and moving the conversation? Yeah, no. no. But here's the thing, especially with bonds, because I don't even think you can have a DQ list on a bond. A DQ list is a disqualified list, or we can get into that more in a minute. Don't mean to get myself here. With bonds or a traded instrument, the person who originally bought that instrument from you and was probably just a par buyer who wanted to just hold that. I mean, maybe they were going to trade it, but they could just hold that security for five or six years, get paid their interest, didn't have any other incentive or motive other than getting principal and interest back at the term of the instrument. They probably sold that instrument as you began getting distressed. As that bond or loan started trading down to 90, 80, 70, it probably changed hands because the buyer base for a new issue loan and the buyer base for a loan or a bond trading at 70 are very different. Yeah. You may now have some distressed investors, some folks who may desire to come out owning the equity of your company, who may take some more aggressive tactics, owning that security or that instrument. Whereas if you did a direct deal with a direct lender, that instrument is not changing hands. You are working with the same group of investors that you were working with when you issued that instrument. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Why has the syndicated loan market dried up a little bit? I talked to a buddy in commercial banking. He said the sole bank deals you can still get done and the syndicated market is really tough right now. Yeah. So there's a few interwoven factors driving that. The way a bank syndication works is, as you certainly know from your background in commercial banking, is the bank makes the commitment and then it syndicates the debt out some months later when the deal is going to close. And if the market deteriorates in that interval, the banks owning the risk of what happened can end up with some debt stuck on their books. And that certainly happened at scale during the second half of last year. And so you had banks with a lot of hung debt on their books. And that, you know, just from like a risk management point of view and a capital regulation point of view constrains their ability to issue new, to make new loan commitments. Yeah. Then syndicate out on the back end. And banks have tried to do some things like regulatory capital deals and, and other ways to free that up. And, and they've also just been offloading those loans. So that's been happening. But on the flip side, even after they've cleared the decks of the hung deals, the banks are in the business of originating to syndicate by and large. So they need to have confidence that they're going to be able to syndicate the loans out on the back end. And what they look at to gain that confidence is CL collateralized loan obligations, which are 
SPVs that invest in broadly syndicated loans and then kind of issue securities of different ratings ranging from AAA down to equity. We can talk about them more later if helpful work with a lot of folks in that space as well. So they look at CLO formation trends and loan mutual fund flows. And if you're not seeing a really robust CLO formation pipeline and loan fund flows, then as a bank, you're not going to have the confidence to really make a big loan commitment that you're going to be able to syndicate it out well on the other side. So that's another thing that's preventing that market from fully getting back to what it might have been a year or two ago. Now, it'll certainly come back as market stabilize and all that picks back up. But right now, you certainly have a situation where a direct lender is really going to be the main game in town if you are looking to finance a large below investment grade transaction. Hmm. That's interesting. I apologize if this is a very stupid question, no. but what kind of a direct lender are we talking about here? Because it's got to be somebody that's got like a pretty big balance sheet. Yeah, exactly. So as I said, like private credit's kind of a broad church that can encompass everything from direct lending to more niche strategies like asset backed or real estate debt or distressed and things like that. So direct lenders, there's a few of them that are large household names. There's probably a half dozen that are really large and scale that have tens or hundreds of billions of dollars under management. And, and most of these firms have multiple strategies, but direct lending is a large piece of it. And they can kind of write those billion dollar checks, hold $500 million loans because they're managing tens and tens of billions across different direct lending strategies. Now, the form those direct lending strategies can take in terms of the vehicle they sit in can vary widely. And that's actually another interesting point that I definitely want to make sure we discuss is that Direct lending as an investing strategy can fit in a lot of different wrappers. It can be in a traditional institutional investor drawdown fund, where maybe it's a five or seven year fund that makes capital calls, makes investments, pays out interests to its institutional LPs. It's a very similar structure to a PE fund, a little bit different of a cash flow profile to the investor because you're seeing income day one, so you don't have the PE J curve, so it fits a different need in the portfolio. But all your capital is not called immediately, right? Your capital gets called over the call period. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There are capital calls that get called down. There, there are other vehicles where maybe you put all the capital in day one and it's a more ramp vehicle day one, like non-traded BDCs. I don't want to get myself in trouble here. Okay. The only reason that I ask is I always see the IRRs that are marketed and I'm like, well, that's not really the IRR that I get on my commitment. If it takes a while to come out, and I'm not talking about anything that you do, let's talk about a real estate fund that I had. They're going to market their IRR from the day that the capital is called. But I didn't get called for four years. I got incremental calls. So fine, the IRR on the called money, but I still had uncalled capital that I had to like keep ready to get called. My IRR is not their IRR. That's the only conversation that I'm having. I would say that credit funds generally, compared to like a PE fund or real estate, will generally be calling more of that capital down, putting that capital to work, and you'll be seeing capital back right away compared Quicker. to a fund because you're getting interest payment. I mean, a real estate fund I, might be closer to this because you're getting rent payments, but compared to a PE fund where you make the equity investment and then you're not going to realize it for several years in a yeah. fund, you're going to be getting interest income quarter one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And that actually is a good segue into what I was about to say is some of the other vehicles that are very common are, are BDCs, publicly traded BDCs. So they're listed, they're a stock, you can buy it on Robinhood, buy it on Schwab, and that's a direct lending. And there are some BDCs that have a little more niche strategies like venture debt, or there's one that has more equity in it. But 
generally they're investing in direct loans to sponsor back companies, paying out the interest, employing a modest amount of leverage. And anybody can buy those just like a stock, but it's a closed end fund. Basically, it's a registered investment company, makes all the SEC filings, but moves around like a stock. And then there's a non-traded BDC or an interval fund, which is really kind of the vehicle du jour, if you will, especially for tapping that kind of mass affluent retail market, which is really where the big opportunity is right now for alternative asset management writ large in a lot of ways. Just when you think about where untapped pools of capital are for alternative asset managers, retail has maybe a 5% allocation to alternatives, whereas institutions have a 20, 30% allocation to alternatives. So if retail starts bringing up that alternative allocation, that's a multi-trillion dollar opportunity for the alternative asset management space. And in many ways, private credit is kind of the optimal strategy for the retail investor for some of the reasons we just talked about that you're getting income back day one. It's meeting that need of like a well-off retiree or other person who kind of needs income to fund their lifestyle, fund expenses, pay college tuition, what have you. Yeah. So the non-traded BDC has become a very, very popular vehicle. Interval fund, another name for that. There's a slight difference where not all interval funds are technically registered as BDCs and kind of my issue there. Why do non-traded BDCs have sort of the lane to gather the assets? And maybe a connected thought to that is why do traded BDCs seem to have a bit of a stink on them, like reputationally? Part of the appeal to the investor is you do minimize that volatility. For a retail investor served by an advisor, it's an easier experience for them. It's not bouncing around every day because it's a private investment. They are marked. It might go down if the value of the loans go down. It might go up a little bit, but it's a private investment that's marked quarterly the way any private fund would be, and you're getting that consistent return from it. Sometimes the fees might be a little different. That varies vehicle by vehicle and firm by firm, but you might get a little bit better fees if you're buying a private BDC in size versus if you're buying the public vehicle. Hmm. Same way that if you're buying the institutional vehicle, you're probably getting a little bit of a fee break. Oh, that makes sense. If okay. you're writing the $1 million check, you're getting a bit of a fee break over the person writing yeah, no doubt. the $1 million check. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, okay. If you're the $500 million check, it's even better. Yeah, well, then you get sidecars and all that right, stuff. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Co-investment opportunities on the institutional side, for sure. That's a big thing now as well. Yeah. Kind of in that mass affluent retail spot, it can be a better experience for the customer. It meets that need really well. But the ones now, it's not like the kind of non-traded REITs of yesteryear that maybe, and this will segue into the comment about the for lack of a better word, stink that might apply to public BDCs due to some outdated perceptions. But most of these vehicles now, they do have quarterly liquidity windows. You are able to redeem to some extent when you need it. And they are really run the same way as the institutional strategy in terms of what is being invested in. The asset base will look very similar if you look at that manager's flagship institutional direct lending strategy, flagship non-traded BDC. And if they have a listed BDC, the portfolios across all of those will probably look pretty similar. You're not like getting stuff shunted off into a different vehicle. Is part of this shift your industry raising the issue and saying, hey, look at the opportunity if you treat everybody equally and everybody can win and the market can grow? Or is this sort of a consequence of some bad behavior that has forced some better behavior or a little bit of both? I'm not sure to say the latter. And when you say my industry, I wish I could 
claim it as the PR industry. I meant just Josh this. Clarkson single-handedly moving everything. Exactly. It's just me. It's my tweets, man. My tweets are just moving people into private credit. It's amazing that you have that power. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I should use it responsibly. But no, I mean, I think a lot of it, it was a confluence of things, which was you had direct lending itself, growing demand for a direct lending solution from the borrowers. You had more opportunities to put capital to work. You had growing demand among sophisticated retail investors for alternatives. You had this type of credit investing being a very good fit for that. And I mean, listen, you just had baby boomers aging. There's a lot of wealth out there. Also, you had an environment for the past 10-ish years where rate rises were right around the corner. So a floating rate investment that paid a good return now and was protected against future rate rises was very appealing. And being able to package that in a vehicle without the volatility of a stock, but with some liquidity access should you need it. It's a very appealing product. It solves a real need in the market. It really does solve a real customer need for that retail mass affluent investor who's looking for that steady growing income stream with less volatility and a really well-managed strategy. And I think that success begets success. And you had more and more folks bringing strategies like these to market. So now it's a pretty well-established category. I mean, there's still a lot of growth runway ahead of it as it's rolled out to more wirehouses and RIAs and, and gains more acceptance. I'm sorry to have an imprecise answer, but I don't necessarily have like a silver bullet answer for what drove it. I'm just saying that you were in a really low yield environment for a long time and people had a need for investments that could pay the kind of yield they needed to fund their yeah. retirement lifestyle, what have you. That's interesting. I'm not sure we're ever in an environment where yield is not liked. I know some people don't like dividends and whatever, but I'm one of those boomer types that enjoys cash coming back in. Oh, definitely. If you were somebody who was kind of a person nearing retirement or what have you, and you've been planning for retirement one way in the early 2000s when rates were like 5 or 6% on investment-grade bonds, and then all of a sudden you're actually getting much nearer to retirement in like a 2011, 12, 13 environment. Maybe you lost some money on equities in the crisis, but that bounced back. Like you're, you're still doing well. You're still going to be able to retire. But where you're going to get that mid to high single digit yield that you thought was going to be on offer or mid single digit or above yield you thought was going to be on offer in investment grade bonds, that's no longer there. So that's 60, 40. You'll hear the term fixed income replacement used. That 60-40 portfolio really wasn't going to make sense in a world where the 40% was, was getting you zero. Right. Huh. And then, of course, that 40% didn't even give you the counter-cyclical balance that you were looking for last year. So it really demonstrated the value of having a meaningful portion of your fixed income allocation in a private credit direct lending type vehicle I mean, listen, like BDCs were down, but they were down a lot less than long-term yeah. treasuries. So I know that there are differences, and I know some have fixed payments and some have floating rates. So with all those caveats out of the window or out of the whatever, the yield on these instruments, at least how they seem to screen, is quite a bit higher. One joke that you made on Twitter is a lot of the guys that like British American tobacco just don't understand BDCs. And I did have to check myself on that because... The stock price of BTI had gone down a lot since the last time I looked at it, so the yield had gone up a lot. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that that provides any comfort for those people. 
Exactly, but the joke didn't work as well. Yeah, fair, fair. So public BDCs, you know, generally provide like a high single-digit, low double-digit dividend yield. The types of loans that are in most large BDCs are almost all floating rate. And listen, like the dividend yield on a BDC is obviously a function of where the stock price is and what the dividend payout is. So the yield can kind of move up and down based on where the stock's trading. And sometimes they trade a little bit above NAV. Right now, as a category, they're trading a little bit below NAV, a little bit below the historical average as well. So that might create a really appealing opportunity for someone of the mind that they're trading too far below NAV on the public side. On the kind of non-traded institutional side, when you look at the yields on offer right now, between spreads have gone up because of the lack of capital availability we discussed earlier with the closed syndicated market, and also base rates have gone up. So if you're looking at a loan pricing at SOFR plus 650 and SOFR begins with a five, yeah. then you've got an 11.5% unlevered yeah. yield. The vehicle you're invested in very likely adds a little bit of leverage to it as well. It may not. And so then all of a sudden you're getting to like a teen's return for a senior secured investment in a really large cap company. I mean, yes, it's a levered sponsor owned company. I'm not saying this is buying IBM bonds. You do have some risk if SOFR comes down, but yeah. I mean, your risk is probably, if SOFR comes down, then yes, your return comes down. This is not a fixed duration. But if you have a strong view that rates are going to come down really quick. Theoretically, you should have some other asset in your portfolio that probably benefits from that. Right. If you have a real strong view that like rates are going to come down way faster than expected, then maybe this isn't where you want to be. Yeah. But if you're just kind of looking at the SOFR curve, you're still looking at a pretty healthy return for the foreseeable future. Even if rates come down a bit or they start pausing. And remember, I mean, even in a low rate environment, BDCs and direct lending were still very attractive and still delivered a really nice yield pickup over what was available elsewhere. Why do you think that is the case? Are they attracting better talent? Are they attracting better deals? Are the deals a little hairier? They charge more. A private credit solution would historically have a premium over a syndicated solution because you were paying for the certainty of execution, the speed, the confidentiality. It's a choice for the sponsor to make. Do you, in a regular way market, in a market where the syndicated market is wide open, usually that will price below what a direct solution will set. What's somebody that doesn't like this going to say? They're going to say something like, well, aren't they lending to crappier companies on average or something like that. Yeah. And this gets back to that, like some stink on the public BDCs. I don't want you to think I was ducking that question. No, I don't. Really We're just talking, man. Other it. than the fact that we've established that you are the only authority that anyone should listen to. <laughs> <laughs> there are definitely much better people on Twitter to listen to about this than me. I just like talking about it a lot more. Yeah, I enjoy it, man. It's funny. I come from a world where People spend so much time debating which equity to own, and I talk about them a lot, but Jason Buck has done a lot on my thinking, and he's like, look, man, you guys are like, to me, like a bunch of birds that are chirping at each other that don't ever think about the broader world. So what I have enjoyed about talking to you is I'm learning more about the broader world, and I don't think my highest and best use is necessarily going to be picking among equities. I think it's probably going to be picking among asset classes. So all jokes aside, I really appreciate the education and the willingness of you to come on because I'm certain there are some listeners that are like me that don't know what the hell is going on with BDCs and appreciate this. 
completely my pleasure. And like I said, Ariane, absolutely love. And some of that stink or that concern, just some of this stink definitely comes from like, listen, if you go way back, like the first like time BDC probably entered much of the investing lexicon was the book about David Einhorn shorting one very famously pre-crisis. Now, the BDC space has evolved incredibly since then. It is like night and day. And I think historically, there was kind of a perception that these were lending to smaller, crappier, junkier companies. You had fees that might have been very high and very opaque. This wasn't necessarily an institutional class product. Whereas now, certainly at the larger end of the market, it, it is not that at all. Like I said, if you look at the portfolio of some of the largest BDCs and you look at the portfolio of those same blue chip asset managers, flagship institutional private credit funds, they're going to look very similar. Hmm. You are not getting a different asset base. Now, listen, like these are leveraged companies. There is credit risk here. I don't mean to yeah. hide that at all. Like you are not getting paid double digit yields for nothing. Correct. Like, yeah. Returns come with risk. You should be 100% upfront about that. These folks do have a rigorous credit culture. They are underwriting that risk. And if you look at the performance over the last 10 years, over the last five years, you've probably got a little bit bigger pure set as the market's expanded. If you look at the net total return to investors of those strategies and you compare it to other yield producing investments with similar volatility profiles and asset bases, it's pretty favorable. Certainly favorable to kind of like broadly syndicated leverage loan retail vehicles. There's then like nichier ways to access leverage loan returns, such as closed end funds that invest in CLO equity, but that's kind of like yeah. the expert level niche credit investing for the retail investor. And then I assume that you have BDCs that if I'm somebody that would prefer ABL loans, because I don't want to deal with my perception of loss given defaults is lower. I got to think there's a product out there that specializes in that. There should be if there's not. There are definitely some that have like bigger ABL sleeves and more exposure to that. I actually don't necessarily think you could really find a BDC. And here I'm again going to get a little over my skis, but there are like the business development company is a creature of statute that was created to help funnel capital to U.S. small businesses. And it's much like a REIT in the sense that it can only invest in certain things. It has to pay out okay. 90% of its income. So like what the asset base can consist of is regulated. Okay. So that And that asset base is unlikely to be ABL on average. I would there think. There are definitely ones out there that have like meaningful ABL components. I'm almost positive there is not like a 50% plus ABL loan BDC out there. I guess a different way of saying what I was going to say is Party City is clearly not a company that needs a BDC. I mean, Party City right now is highly distressed and definitely would not be a fit for a direct lending solution. And I kept up on the latest on Party City. I think they filed Chapter 22. Yeah, I was just thinking long. of them because I remember I sat in an ABL presentation once and the head of the ABL group, I'm pretty sure used them as an example of a business that he loves, but most people hate because the loss given default on those as ABL clients is actually quite good because it's collateral that you can kind of move quickly. But I wouldn't perceive that to be something that the statutorily BDCs are created to help Party City open up the 100th or 150th location. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Party City, not in its current distress Correct. form. But 10 years ago. Yeah, when it was like a well-performing but leveraged retailer, probably would be in this plausible strike zone. Interesting. That original intent of 
funneling business to SBA. Because like originally, I think it was a big component of like SBA loans that still some BDCs do have like an SBA component. That's what was more in my head. Yeah, it has morphed into definitely more of a sponsor-driven market, the positive or negative attributes of that for society and the purpose of the vehicle originally is kind of beyond my remit. But the market standard now is really that a BDC is a pool of directly originated loans to large cap sponsor-backed businesses. If I wanted to be kind to the BDC space, then maybe I'd argue... We've taken the bearish case or discussed that they're levered or whatever. But the other side of it is maybe you have sponsors that have some skin in the game and can attract operators that on average are better than a maybe comparable pool of publicly traded high yield bonds. If you were to take the two baskets or something like that. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, that evolution to focusing on large cap sponsor fees has definitely been an improvement for the kind of BDC investor, I yeah. think, over focusing on like small mom and pop businesses. Interesting. 100%. I mean, you have professional management teams, you have top tier sponsors, you have great operational resources being brought to bear to improve these companies. You also have sponsors that are incented to kind of usually keep these businesses performing. And sometimes you saw this a lot during COVID, like we'll put more equity in if they kind of hit a rough patch and they need to. And also, mind you, the BDCs often have operational expertise as well. Sometimes they'll offer a little incremental advice, what have you, if they maybe have some specific area of expertise that's relevant to the company in the normal course of business. And importantly, in the unfortunate situation where a company really runs into some trouble and the sponsor reaches a point where they don't want to continue capitalizing the company and you are going to have kind of a debt for equity swap, many of these BDCs that are part of large, diversified, multi-strategy alternatives firms, or just do have the resources internally, they can take over ownership of the company. I mean, many of these firms also have a PE arm. So this comes to worse and they need to take over a company, Yeah, they can do that and they can make operational improvements and they can get the business back on track. I I have clients who, when they look at their private credit investments and when they look at their recovery rates for defaulted private credit investments, it's over 100%. That's what I was thinking about, yeah. Listen, huh. it's 100 No, you can't expect it, but we're just talking theoretically. Also, it's 110% recovery that took you a lot longer, yeah. so the IRR wasn't what you wanted. It was never the outcome you wanted. But compared to like a recovery rate on a syndicated loan or a bond that's in the 40s or the 60s, you had 100, 100 plus percent recovery because you were able to come in and fix the business, address the problem, address the balance sheet, address the business problems, get it in right shape, and then exit. Well, and in any pool loans, you're bound to have some default. So what's your recovery rate given the default right. and whatnot? Interesting, huh? That's cool. It's wild to me how professionalized the niches of finance have gotten. And this is probably, I don't even know if it's late cycle. I think I believe it. I don't even know what I believe anymore after talking to enough smart people. But I think there's a reason that valuations are higher than they've been in the past. And I think there's a reason that yields may be lower. And I think some of what we're talking about could be some of the reason. I mean, a lot of like the shitty outcomes, it's funny, I talk and I hear somebody chirping in my ear. It's probably just my own head that's like, oh, of course, he's going to say like, none of the bad outcomes are out there. This is late cycle, business cycles over, whatever. But like, that's not the comment. The comment is just, maybe we've learned as a society and as a profession. And maybe we're a little bit better at things than we used to be. Maybe not. Maybe humans are always the same. Definitely across finance, across asset classes, there is a institutionalization of every asset class. And it's kind of like for every 
weird asset, weird situation, something you have, like there is an owner for it, or there is somebody who has sought to make that their thing. You listen to like the, how you can be a stock market genius type stuff and all those things that were these weird niche special situations that now have huge dedicated pools of capital that pursue that. Yeah, that's right. And then you also get things like, this is off topic a little bit, but if a successful franchisor starts opening corporate owned stores, you get an activist that comes in here and they're like, look, this is crap for your ROIC or whatever, or your returns on invested capital. And it's time for you to just focus on the high return stream and sell off the other stuff. I don't think that franchisor, given a growth runway, I don't think McKinsey thinks it should trade at the same multiple as an asset heavier business. Obviously, the growth runway matters and whatever. Oh, I mean, that's a different conversation that I used to be closer to when I used to do a lot more activist investing related work, but definitely kind of the role of the engaged investor, whether like a hardcore activist or just an active manager that feels a need to earn their fee in a world of passive, taking a more active approach, being more willing to vote with an activist in a situation is definitely just kind of held corporate managements to a higher standard. And, and at the same time, the role of PE and kind of professionalizing management in the kind of middle market, if you will, I definitely think there's an element of the bar for management across any enterprise in the developed markets these days is just so much higher than it was 20 or 30 years ago, because somebody's going to hold you to account if you're not delivering. That's nice to hear, because part of what I worry about, about the trend towards passive is a little less active owners. You have fewer in number, but more active in intensity, if you will, owner. Yeah. Okay. This is definitely separate from private credit, but something I'm glad to talk about. The passive funds will vote with the activists. The rise of passive funds with large governance departments who they might not take a strong view on, hey, is it better for you? I mean, listen, like they can't sell. So they need the activist investor out there to kind of enforce that discipline for them. Because like regular long-only mutual fund, if they don't like that that franchisee or that franchisor is pivoting to a company-owned store model because they want to empire build at the expense of ROIC and at the expense of their really beautiful asset light business, that long-only mutual fund, they can just sell it. They get to say like, hey, you know what? I'm going to sell you. I'm going to buy the person who's very focused on the franchisor model because I like that model more. The index fund, they can't sell. They're stuck. So hmm. they need somebody to try to get you back on track. Oh, that's interesting. So if you were back in your old role, would part of your old role being like knowing some of the governance people at the ETF? Or if you had it today, is that how you would approach it? Yeah. You get to know some of those people and facilitate those conversations? I would know those people socially, let's say, and I, and I might know some of them, but you would probably be hiring a proxy solicitor. Or I mean, listen, at the really large activist funds, they have those relationships directly now. Yeah. Usually there's somebody called a proxy solicitor, and I'm glad to connect you with a pal who really traffics in that world if you ever want. I just think it's fascinating. Like, how does this stuff work behind the scenes? It is a really fascinating world. I mean, there's a whole concept of an RFA or a request for activism when a long only or somebody put some feelers out there that if somebody were to take a run at a company, they would appreciate it and support it. And yeah, hmm. I mean, listen, like if you are a, an activist shareholder in 2023 and you're looking at like large cap companies, you are definitely thinking about how are these proposals going to sound to the large passive owners and are they going to support these? Ah, interesting. Hmm. That's wild, man. Yeah. 
It's cool stuff. What did you enjoy about your old role? It was a lot of fun. It's high pressure. It's high stakes. You're always learning something new, because especially on like the activism side and on the MA side, writ large, one of the things I really like about focusing on working with financial sector clients is, sure, I focus on the financial sector, but I need to know about the businesses my clients are investing in. So if my client, so I get to be learning something new every day and it keeps it interesting and it keeps it fun. Yeah. If I just covered industrial companies, I should do everything about industrials. I'm sure that would be cool and fun. But this way, like, hey, maybe I'm working with somebody who's making an activist run an industrial company or working on an industrial merger. So I need to all of a sudden get really, really smart on this sector that my client is investing in. And I still have to do that, certainly in what I do now, working with my credit investing clients when there are areas like vet clinics or dental clinics or SaaS businesses that are really top of mind for the PE space. I need to know about those industries and their dynamics and how investing in credit in them works. But not kind of the same way that you had to have like a crash course in learning everything about U.S. oil refining that you could in 48 hours to help come up with a strategy and a communication strategy for approaching this. You had to learn all kinds of new reporters, learn all kinds of new facts, and it was a lot of fun. Hmm. Especially on the activist side, like there was kind of a real feeling in a lot of cases where like, this is something really, these guys have a point. And especially the activist side was, was really fun. There aren't a lot of firms that in our seat that will really focus on taking the activist work. There are a few that do more of that versus much with law firms and investment banks and other advisors. A lot of folks focus more on the corporate side of it. You're kind of out there, you're agitating. And, and especially also in M&A, especially in contested M&A, but like activism or contested M&A, like PR is playing such a big role because it's, it's a yeah. political campaign. You're getting Yeah, votes. man, that'd be you're fun. You're votes. So like you have a real seat at the table in a way that you might not in like friendly M&A or some other situation. It's cool. Like you've got like a, you've got like, oh, here's all these different, almost have like a content calendar laid out. You've got like, we're going to attack this part of their governance next week. You're all tracking down to that ultimate vote. If you're actually running a proxy contest, sometimes you have forms of activism where you're not really intending to run a proxy contest. You're just kind of making your views known. You might be doing other things, but in a traditional, and even a proxy contest, you're usually going to settle before the vote, but you have the strategy mapped out for the vote. Yeah. So you kind of have like this calendar of like, and listen, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. So invariably that calendar goes out the window, but you've kind of got that calendar of like, we're going to release this nugget then. They've got earnings then and we're going to listen to earnings and if there's anything we can attack on earnings we're going to do that then and it's fun man it's really fun that's gotta suck as a company that's got it going on because you've got this team that's out there fighting a war of words and then the company i mean what they should be thinking about theoretically is just execute then it will go away but that would be super fun man and like crafting the narrative around it yeah, that would be exactly. really interesting I can definitely throw some feelers out to some folks who might want to hop on with you about that, who can talk about it in even more depth. It's a lot. And listen, I mean, the company is, it is unfortunately management distraction. And that is a thing that can be problematic, but like they hire a lot of people to help them with it. Yeah, that's true. There's a well-established advisory community of lawyers and bankers and proxy solicitors and governance consultants that they bring in so that they're getting best in class advice and minimizing the day-to-day -day time it's taking. Yeah, it's got to feel like a litigation. Yeah. I mean, usually it's accompanied by litigation. <laughs> Sometimes it's accompanied yeah. by a lot of litigation. Not to bring everything back to this, but there actually has been instances of BDC activism where this hasn't happened so much recently. And this is actually not that everything in my life comes back to private credit. It can. That's fine. Yeah. You do seem to really have a passion I for it. I shop for my daughter's stuffed animals based on when loan deals are having a hard time. You had instances in the past where you had some BDCs that weren't really well run. 
But, you know, like they had the 40 Act registration, they had the shell, like they had all the infrastructure in place, which does have some value. So you would have managers with not really in the traditional activists, you would have managers that had that credit expertise try to kind of take over that management contract so that they could take that shell, that infrastructure, and apply their better credit investing expertise to it. I worked on one of those at a firm called TICC. They were the target we represented. There were actually multiple firms involved taking run out. We worked with them on it. What worked with one of the, the actors on is super interesting. I think a lot of those smaller BDCs have now wound down and been sold and merged into larger best-in-class platforms. There have been a few different instances of that that you can find. Oak Tree very publicly did that. Bearings has done some of that. So I'd have to check those specific situations about kind of what the exact back and forth was that led to that. The activism can be tough, though, there, because you have a big retail shareholder base that doesn't vote. So hmm. votes is tough. Also, a lot of yeah. people registered in Maryland, along with REITs, which has much more management-friendly corporate law than Delaware. Okay. That makes some sense. That's a knock, and I totally understand why it's a knock. Did you mean like the Maryland corporate law thing? Yeah. Oh, uh, I can't help but wonder if there's some parts of Delaware that are maybe like a little bit too shareholder friendly, but also I should not be advocating that because I'm a shareholder. And I gotta be honest, with the BDCs, I'm not 100% where they're all registered. I know the TICC situation, they were a Maryland corporation that definitely had like real impacts on that situation. And I know there's been a history of REIT activism where Maryland was very friendly to the REITs. And I mean, the REITs, a lot of them were family controlled businesses to start that then went with the REITs and they kind of went with Maryland to, I think, preserve some of that family control maybe in some cases. Yeah. I would do it if I were them. And if you're an investor, you don't have to invest in them. That would be sort of my take. Most of the stuff I focus on working with and not that anybody should ever take any investment advice or anything, but for like the lay investor, like focusing on those like large cap blue chip brand associated BDCs, I'm not sure where exactly they're registered, but also like those are mostly run by like very large scaled managers that run them well and a, I mean, I think they're just well-run and there's not like any need for activism there, but then also just like practically effectuating an activist campaign against a BDC that is owned and controlled by and largely invested in by a multi-hundred million dollar alternative asset management firm is very different than maybe taking activists run at like a sub-billion dollar standalone BDC that... Yeah. You mean you don't think I could fight Aries? I don't know. I mean, it'd be a fun podcast series. No, no. I got a buddy over there. I can't be doing that. It could be like you, you may know after him, hours, actually. guys. It could like kind of start with the gang goes activist, like an old, like always sunny in Philadelphia thing. Yeah, that's right. You should find like a small, some random small cap and kind of do that as like a special series. Dude, I would much rather spend time with my kids. That's a fair point. I think it's fun to watch others, and I think it's a fascinating part of the world. It is also a part that I have no desire to enter. My stepbrother is a guy named Stephen David Solomon, very well-known corporate law professor out of Berkeley, and he does a lot of work in corporate governance, also practiced for a long time, used to write a wonderful column at the New York Times. So he and a colleague, another professor who's a wonderful writer named Frank Partnoy, who has done a lot of great books himself, they did an activist campaign at this small cap, basically land bank called Tejan Ranch. It was a big Atlantic article. Huh. If you Google Stephen Frank's excellent activism adventure, it was like a play on Bill and Ted. Yeah. It was this great Atlantic article, must be four or five years ago now, but it was like really quite fun. And they like drive to go see management. It's a good read. It's a really fun read. Yeah, I would like that. Maybe he'll come on the pod. 
I'd talk to him about that. That'd be interesting. I would be glad to put that request in. Yeah, that'd be cool. How'd you fall in love with the BDC world? Even offline, you wax poetic about this. So they've either fully got you or you actually believe what you're saying. And I think it's the latter. I'm not trying to be like poly. I mean, listen, is it like the right investment for everyone at every stage of their life? Obviously not. Should you have your entire portfolio in BDC stocks as a 35-year-old gainfully employed person with an income? No, that's probably not the right thing for you. Is it a really valuable tool, in my opinion, to the investor seeking a pretty consistent income backed by an asset pool they can understand, run by a really good manager? Like, yeah, I do. I, I think it is a really valuable tool. Here's a live example of how it may make sense in my life. So my wife and I wanted to avoid rent. And we bought this house while we're building this other house, which may or may not ever be built, hopefully sooner than later, but it felt like forever. Anyway, this house, we're looking at the rental yield and it's fine, I guess. I need to put a decent amount of leverage on the house in order to make it make sense. Or we could sell the house and buy like a basket of BDCs and not have an actively managed real estate investment that is suboptimal from a yield standpoint and has already served its purpose. To me, that's kind of how I mentally bucket where an allocation may go. Yeah. And in a world where you're not going to get 3%, 80% LTV, freely prepayable leverage on the house. Correct. Obviously, there's all kinds of tax benefits to real estate and whatnot. There is an interval fund out there that you can 1031 exchange real estate into. Oh, really? Yeah. You sell the house. You put the proceeds in a Delaware statutory trust and then invest in the interval fund and you have like a professionally managed fund. You don't need to go like overpay for some Chick-fil-A ground lease or whatever huh. from some 1031 broker. Is it actually possible to overpay for a Chick-fil-A ground lease? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't, maybe not. Twitter <laughs> kind of tells you it's not. I don't think it should be. According to Twitter, much like German buns two years ago, a Chick-fil-A ground lease could conceivably trade at negative real rates and still That's be- right. That's as good as gold, Jerry. Yeah, exactly. As far as how I fell in love with the space, I mean, I kind of touched on this earlier. And it's funny, like when we talked about kind of what firms hire us to do, there's a lot of credit investors, call it maybe, that were like more focused on distressed immediately coming out of the financial crisis in the years following and did very well with that. We're very happy to be known for that. And then as the market evolved, there was less distress. You had to find things to do. The industry kind of migrated more towards multi-strategy platforms that did distress, that did performing, that had a CLO business, that had a direct lending business. So just in terms of me needing to find things to work on and earn a living, I just started doing more performing credit work, whether that's CLO managers or direct lenders in private credit. And you know, I had some BDC work in the past on the activism stuff, and it was just very interesting to me. I love credit. I think it's interesting. I love getting in the weeds. I love all the wonkiness. I mean, my favorite things to do at work are where I have to take a really complex topic and explain it in a slightly more simplified but still smart way to a certain audience to help my client achieve their business objectives. That's like my dream thing is I get to learn about something really complex from really smart hmm. people and then simplify it down for another audience or effectively persuade some other audience of their point of view. That's what I love is the learning part of it. What did you study in college? Oh, I was like the classic poli-sci major for lack of anything better to do, went to law school for lack of anything better to do, passed the bar and everything. It was a horrible legal hiring market in 2011 and kind of fell into this. Huh. I would imagine a lot of those skills translate pretty well. They definitely do. Where'd you go to law school? FSU. We both grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah. I, mean, I thought like when I was 
picking law schools, I thought the highest and best use of my life ever would be like having a sick condo on Brickell and like hanging out in South Beach and living in South Florida for my whole life. And so I went to FSU and the financial crisis hit. It was the South Florida job market was even worse than up north. A lot of my friends were up in New York. So I did my last semester at Brooklyn Law. When I was trying to find some kind of corporate law job in New York with an FSU degree, that wasn't going super well. And a friend of a friend was able to put me in touch with somebody at a firm that had a division that did what I do now. They were a bigger firm that did a lot of things. And this gentleman was like, go look at the careers website and see if there's anything that sounds interesting to you. And there was one that said Capital Markets Junior Associate. And it said something about strategic communications division. I didn't even understand what strategic communications division meant. Capital Markets Junior Associate sounded cool. The description sounded like I didn't actually need to know how to do math, which I can't do. So I was like, I'll do that one if I can. And that was 12, 13 years ago now. And been doing this ever since. Interesting. Been a prosec for the vast majority of that. Been in some other firms, actually left and came back, but been a prosec for the vast majority of that. Really wonderful firm, wonderful people. A place where I can really focus on that area of passion. Yeah, that's neat, man. What more can you want out of a career? Exactly. And just to close the loop on the BDC thing, it's got the interesting investment strategy, but it's also got the public equity component because it's a public stock. So like there's equity research out there about it. There's people buying and selling the stock. So kind of like brings it all together, if you will. It's like all the fun intricacies of private markets with the kind of daily scorecard communication challenges, analytical elements of public equities. So it kind of makes it a little bit more multifaceted and I think it's just a really fun area. Yeah, that's neat. I like that. I should do a series on people that went to law school <laughs> and then didn't become attorneys and didn't regret it. You have a pretty full queue, <laughs> I think. I do think it's a good training ground. Yeah, and listen, like I went to a state school since it was pretty cheap. I didn't come out with any debt. The job market was horrible. So like the opportunity cost for me of spending three years in law school was like not huge. I mean, I think like yeah. there's a different situation where like you had a lot of kids, especially back then. I think now this has been ameliorated somewhat through public education, through just like more public awareness about it. But we had situations with people going like six figures into debt to go to a marginal law school that was never going to get them employed in a way that was going to be able to yeah. them back. I think that's like a different problem. Like for me, it worked out great. And that's fine. But I do think that it's funny. There's actually another Twitter guy who I had friends with in real life. The first time we met in real life was because he tweeted something about, I'm debating going to law school. And through, through like his postings, I kind of knew that he lived in my area. I'm in LA now, but I lived in Manhattan at the time. I was like, hey man, why don't you come meet me at the district and we'll eat some oysters and I'll talk to you about it going to law school unless you really want to. And a buddy of mine, we had a really nice conversation about the pros and cons of going to law school. So that's obviously a whole different conversation, but it is a good training and it's a multifaceted skill set and all that. But I do worry that sometimes people like, look at those outlier outcomes of somebody who happened to go to law school, not become a lawyer and be really successful and try to back that into like, oh, I should like borrow 150 grand to go to like a mid-tier or worse law school. Yeah, no, like don't do that. Direct plan of how I'm going to monetize that. Yeah, that actually is investment advice. Don't do that. I wonder, I say this, I don't know that I actually believe it because I spent some time in college bartending, but I wonder if I would have liked the Socratic method in college. I get the sense that I would have because the hardest classes that I took in college, I actually enjoyed the most. The easier ones are where I probably wasted my time the most. I interview you, lots of people, I manage people. That's one of my favorite parts of my job is all the wonderful colleagues above me, below me, lateral to me that I work with and especially the people I manage. And these people we hire now, like they're so well qualified and they have these resumes of, 
I majored in this, I interned here, I did this, I studied this. And I think back to like me in college, I was picking film in the Vietnam War because it just meant I could like watch like Platoon Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket <laughs> in a classroom for like two hours a week and get college credit for it. I was like, that's awesome. And I think about some of that stuff and I'm just like, man, I was such a little idiot. Yeah, well, I think it's part of college. It's the part that I don't think anybody likes, but it's the part that exists. And it's fun. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I think about like the fact that like I came into what I do with like so little knowledge of finance or any of this stuff. I mean, there were some law school classes I took that were, I mean, I took like very basic accounting and econ courses in college. And I took law school classes that were like more geared at corporate and securities and stuff. But so much of what I learned was just reading Matt Levine, Deal Breaker and Bloomberg blog posts and like Googling things until I understood everything. Podcasts weren't really a thing back then, but like podcasts, it's great how like democratized access to that kind of stuff is now that you can teach yourself a ton. Yeah. It's been fun to participate in. I hope, well, I know that I've actually added more value than I've said dumb things, but some of the things that I look back at that I've said, I just have to get over the fact that I'm going to sound like an idiot sometimes. Can't talk this much and say too much smart stuff. I sound like an idiot all the time, multiple times a day. <laughs> well, I think it's a function of life, yeah. but we'll see. Anyway, I appreciate you stopping by, man. This has been an absolute pleasure, man. I've really, really appreciated it. This has been great. Thanks for having me and huge fan of the pod. Looking forward to hearing myself talk. Or I don't know, maybe I'm not, maybe a little scared about hearing myself talk, but certainly looking forward to many more wonderful guests from you. Yeah, well, I appreciate you coming on. and. I think when you hear what I heard, you'll be like, oh, that was pretty good. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd be happy. All right, we will catch up again soon, hopefully. And until then, take care of yourself. Sounds like a plan and likewise.